Persecution is not the end of the spread of the gospel, but it's actually the beginning. If you're familiar with any amount of Christian history, even as was mentioned just now, you know that God and his messengers have been opposed. What might surprise you is that the most common instance of that happening is by other people who claim to know God. Not atheists. Other people who claim to know God. But you know what? Even in spite of all of that, this rejection throughout history has been in vain. Because God's kingdom has advanced, and it is advancing, and it will continue to advance. This theme of the unstoppable kingdom that we've been reading about as we've been looking through Acts, it's not new. So as we continue, if you remember the last section on your map, we just walked through a season of internal and external pain for God's church, but none of that stopped its growth. In fact, the church has just appointed seven men to serve to keep up with the demand making sure in this case the older members are being cared for and the apostles can focus on prayer and preaching. So in other words, even their own internal shortcomings don't stop God from blessing their growth. Just as no amount of external pressure, even jail as we read, has stopped God's kingdom from moving forward. Hopefully that helps you kind of catch up where we've been so far. Now in this next section, if you look at your map, we're going to see growth in spite of varied results. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to see the gospel go to different places and to different audiences, and the reception is going to vary greatly. And we'll begin with a result that some of you probably don't prefer, and that's persecution. Or in this case, martyrdom. That's going to be the result of preaching the gospel this week. But we're going to see that persecution is not the end of the spread of the gospel, but the beginning, very much so. So my aim today in doing all this is to encourage the persecuted and to terrify those who are persecuting. That's my goal. So we're going to look at the growing church, and in particular, we're going to look at one of those seven serving men, a man named Stephen. So I'm going to read Acts chapter 6, 8 through 15 to begin. We're going to cover a lot of text today. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard... With which, uh, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and they seized him and they brought him before the council and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases. 
to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw (coughs) that his face was like the face of an angel. So the first thing happening here is that the author Luke is telling us something, and that is that the rejection of God and his servants is happening in vain. Let me make a few observations. Stephen, who's called in verse 8, full of grace and power, he's doing great signs and great wonders, just like Peter and Jesus before him, And he's doing all this to spread the gospel. But then this diverse group of Jews seems to just kind of dogpile on top of him. Who are these guys? Well, there's not a lot of conclusive evidence on their backgrounds. But look at verse 9. We can say that they represent different people groups who share a rejection of what Stephen is proclaiming, and that's Jesus. That's what they have in common. Now, we can assume that because of Luke's endorsement of Stephen so far, that he's not simply making, like, rookie preacher mistakes and getting called out by older, wiser people. I think we can assume that's happening. In fact, look at verse 10. They can't withstand the wisdom and the Spirit of God in Him. So, they do what any self-respecting person would do. They cheat. (laughs) Look at verse 11. They instigate crowds. They drum up false charges. And all this leads to Stephen being grabbed and brought before the local religious leaders And verse 11 lays out these charges, these false charges. He is speaking blasphemous words, cursing, rejecting Moses and God. And verses 13 and 14, he wants to destroy the temple. In other words, this guy hates God and he hates Judaism. Pretty serious charges. So I want you to imagine being Stephen. Or like a female version of Stephen, I guess, if you have to. Um, You're a new deacon, or you become a member of a good church. Let's say that happens. Maybe this one. Um, And you're doing really good work. You're serving. The church is beginning to run smoothly. And the right people are being helped. And all of a sudden, you're all over television false charges, and your reputation is in jeopardy. You might need to think creatively, but just imagine that happening. Imagine how you might feel. How would you act when the microphone was thrust in your face? Well, we know how Stephen feels. In verse 15, his face is described as that of an angel. 
strange, uh, strange way to put it, but here's the point. The point is this in Stephen's reaction. He knows his work is not in vain. He's being rejected in vain. The charges not only aren't true, but it's clear from how Stephen's responding that he's not going to wither. He's not shaking. You might even say he looks like he's about to be at his very best. And I think it's because he knows who his master really is. And it's not the crowd. So how does this apply? When false charges come and when you're slandered. Here's your application. Expect that. Expect persecution. If you are signed up to serve the Lord. Not just necessarily if you're a deacon. Although I would argue that the higher up you go in the church. The more likely it's going to happen. But expect that. Not that it will happen every time. Remember the results vary. But remember this. You can live a life like Stephen. Full of grace and power. And the spirits working in you. And you're serving the church. And do you know what your earthly reward might be? False charges and public humiliation. That might be your reward. And you know what? That doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing it wrong. I say necessarily because there is a nuance in this application. Be sure the charges against you are actually false. It was said a few weeks ago that not every worldly opposition equals persecution. It's true. I mean, sometimes the reason you got pulled over was not your bumper sticker. It's because you're a terrible driver. Sometimes people speak against your work not because they're a hater. Because your work isn't very good. (laughs) So there is a bit of a call here that I can't ignore for a servant of God to live in such a way... That false charges are the only charges they have against you. A corrupt man on trial will not shine. So how does Stephen actually answer these charges? Now that we're in the courtroom and the microphone's in his face. Well, he's going to answer them at very great length. (laughs) I'll be reading the first 43 verses from chapter 7 now. Now, as I read all this, it might be very easy for you to check out, especially if you've heard any of these stories before. But I want you to do this. I want you to think about those charges, blaspheming God, wanting to destroy the temple. And I want you to look for two things. And I want you to keep your eyes peeled for them. First, look for blasphemy and rejection. Look for just that theme of rejection through the scripture. Who's getting rejected? Who's doing the rejecting? And secondly, look for Moses. Because according to the false charges, the timeline starts with him. Let's see if Stephen starts there or not. So, now the first 43 chapters of chapter 7. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said... Brothers and sisters, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. 
before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring around him, after him, though he had no child. And God said to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he set out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who didn't know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside and said, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire and a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. 
Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and you have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the land of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing signs and wonders in Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel when God spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but they thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and they offered a sacrifice to the idol and they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and of the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. That's not even the whole response, but we'll stop there. (laughs) So what's being said here? Well, the second thing being said by Luke here is that the rejection of God and his servants has happened in vain. Has happened in vain. Did you see all the rejection? Who got rejected? Well, mostly God's chosen messengers and God himself. We'll get to the messengers in a moment, but did you notice when the story began? Did it begin with Moses? It did not. In verses 2 and 3, Stephen begins with Abraham. Not only that, the story begins in Mesopotamia, not Israel. Brief point there. And here's what it is. What God is promising, His plan, it's a grand adventure and it's bigger than Israel. That's all that's being said there. And that's good because what follows is nothing but rejection of God's messengers by Israel. So here's, here's some of the main chief points of rejection. And obviously God is kind of behind Like he's the one being rejected. But here are the main people being rejected. Look at verse 9. Joseph is rejected by the patriarchs, the founding fathers of Israel, his own brothers. But it's in vain. Because what happens? Verse 14, Israel is saved through Joseph's work. So you get that? They reject him, but it doesn't matter God delivers him, and then Israel gets saved through his work. Then Moses is rejected, not once, not twice, 
three times. First, in verses 17 through 22, obviously Pharaoh rejects him. He attempts to kill all of Israel's son. They just genocidally just get rid of them all. But it's in vain. Because in verse 21, God spares him. But then, in verses 24 through 29, Moses is rejected a second time. He's trying to rescue an Israelite slave from an oppressive slave master. But this time, his own Israelite people chase him out of town. But it's in vain. In verses 29 through 34, God gives him a family and kids and a new calling to save Egypt. But then, in verses 35 through 43, even after bringing Pharaoh low and delivering Israel and bringing them near the promised land, Moses is rejected by them again. They're no better than Pharaoh. In fact, they've rejected him twice. (laughs) But it is in vain. Because though God hands them over to their idols and enemies, we know from history that God's promises which are bigger than Israel, are not taken away. So I moved quickly through that, but do you understand what Stephen is getting at? It's not so much that he's defending himself against the charges, yet, as this is a history lesson, blowing up the charges and indicting every Israelite. Israel's history is persistent rejection of God's servants, God's kingdom, by His own people. It's not good moral laws and a happy temple. It is rejection. And remember, Stephen keeps using the phrase, our fathers, in his defense. So he's not even giving himself the moral high ground here. You know what? That's what moves me so much about this text. You know, imagine, remember how I said, imagine if you're kind of thrown into this scenario, how you'd feel. I would have given maybe, given maybe a much shorter answer than Stephen. They'd have been like, are these charges true? And I would have just been like, no. Right? What would you have said? Probably something like, no, like I'm, I'm doing good work here. We're just trying to help the community. Right? I don't know what you would have said. That's what I would have said. But most people on trial, especially if they know they're innocent, would spend their response defending themselves, and Stephen doesn't do that. You know what he says? To his accusers, he says, We're all guilty of this great sin against our God. That's what he says. But there's a way out. And that's how Stephen finishes his defense and answers the remaining charge, which is the destruction of the temple. 
So let me read verses 44 through 51. Now we're back in the wilderness. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the child of Jacob or for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? says the Lord, (laughs) or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, and that's Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So what's Stephen saying here? The temple building is not the point. Who cares about it, in a manner of speaking? What the point is, is the worship of the God who makes all things. That's the purpose of worship. Verse 44, a tent is built by Moses and it's carried on and on and we get a nice little history lesson. And finally in verse 47, a temple is built, but after all that work, Stephen quotes, he says the prophet, and he means Isaiah, in verse 49 and 50, God says, I made heaven and earth, what's a temple to me? So what does God want here? What are they not giving him that he wants? Well, right after that quote from Isaiah, which is in chapter 66, God says this, But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit. Throughout history, that's what God has wanted. In short, God doesn't care about a building. He wants humble people. That's the building. That's the kingdom. But think back to our little Israelite history lesson. What kind of people does he have? So Stephen answers, in a manner of speaking, the charges now in verse 51 by saying this. You reject God. There's no we anymore. 
There's no hour. And in verse 52, I think what he actually does is he reverses the charges. You reject the Spirit of God. Verse 52, you reject his messengers. You betrayed and rejected Jesus. But not Stephen. That's how we got here. Stephen is preaching Jesus. And in a manner of speaking, I think that's his defense. Jesus. That's what separates me and you, Israel. Not some historic moral high ground. But finally, there came the one who all the prophets pointed to. And I know him. And you don't. That's the difference between me and you. So that's his defense. And they don't have a defense. They're guilty. So here's the summary of his argument. Israel has been rejecting God and his messengers in vain. And they're still doing it. Right here in this courtroom today. In other words, what Stephen is saying is, you've rejected God and the prophets, and I'm one of them too. So, how do they respond to Stephen? Well, they kill him. But they do that in vain too. Let me read the final verses of this morning, verses Chapter 7, verses 54 through chapter 8, verse 1. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees... He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the third thing that Luke is saying here is that the rejection of God and His servants will continue in vain. Now what happens here is that He tells them they're murderers and they prove it. So let's focus on the last few verses of Stephen on earth here as we move to apply this to ourselves and our church. 
First, in verse 55, we have to point this out. He gets to see God and Jesus before he dies. He looks on the face of God, which I think is ironic because God can't be contained in a temple, remember? So he gets to look up to heaven and see him. And then in verses 59 and 60, Stephen forgives his enemies in the exact same way that Jesus does before he dies. So there is a very godly nuance to his defense. Because I don't know about you, but when I look on the internet and I see some opponent of the gospel, I want some apologist to just light that guy up, you know? Doesn't that make you feel good? Own that guy? No. There's a godly nuance to this defense that, man, I need to learn a lot more of. Because it's full of two things. Harsh truth. Amen. But tender grace. Amen. I think we need to grow in both of those, don't we? In fact, usually if we usually we miss the first one and and miss the second one, we're just quiet, passive aggressive, and then we just curse everybody as they send us away. Um, but you know what? Stephen legitimately wants these people, as they're throwing rocks at him until he dies, he wants them to see God and Jesus too. Even as they kill him. And those words of forgiveness are his last words on earth. This is the heart of a humble servant in a new kingdom. Deacons, we should have put that on your job application. (laughs) Um, But man, this is a young servant with a vibrant ministry and it is seemingly snuffed out. This does not sound like a good end to the story. Because persecution comes and this amazing, smoothly running church body gets nuked. So imagine that. You get everything going just the way you want it. And your church blows up. That's kind of what happened here. And they go to Judea and Samaria. But again, this persecution is in vain. This is not a sad end to the story. Because remember, this is how the words of Jesus are fulfilled. When he said, at the end of his earthly ministry... You will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. But he did not say how they would get there. So it's not necessarily a happy franchise expansion. I think that's how we'd like to spread to the world. But sometimes God just shoots you out of a cannon. And the point in this is that persecution does not stop the spread of the gospel. Here it begins a massive spread of the gospel. Friends, the growth of this kingdom is unstoppable. And as we're going to like follow this trajectory in the next coming weeks, we're going to see the growth continue as the results continue to vary greatly. In fact, even Saul who's introduced here as an enemy of the gospel, is going to become its biggest advocate. 
So how would all this have applied to the original audience? Well, Theophilus, the notable official who's reading all this and read the book of Luke, that Luke wrote to him, um, he would not only see a clear connection between Stephen and Jesus, but he would continue and he would be persuaded, I think, to trust the persecuted church. In other words, you're not being persecuted because you're doing it wrong. And the other thing that Theophilus would gather from reading this is that he should expect the gospel growth to continue. Expect that. And in that, we have the application for us. So in keeping with point one, remember, you should expect persecution, but here's your other application. Don't expect it to stop the gospel. Don't expect it to stop the gospel. Now I can say so much here, but I'm just going to say this. Um, any of you guys ever watch the news? <laughs> it's a thing. Um, right now, the temptation, as we look at the news, is to conclude for any number of reasons that the gospel is under attack. Have you heard that one? Specifically, maybe even the gospel is being threatened. Have you heard that one? Have you thought it? I have. Um, you know, like all this work is, is in vain. But do you know what? When I read stuff like that, and it kind of messes up my day, like the trajectory of it and my work, or it causes me to just maybe slow down even for a second, do you know what I need most in those moments? I need to close my web browser and I need to pick up my Bible and I need to open it and I need to turn to Acts chapter 7 and I need to look at Stephen and so do you. And then I need to look at history and so do you. And I need to realize this. There is no threat to the gospel. And you need to realize that too. Let that comfort you. As some of you fear the cultural turns, or dare I say it, the downfall of America. Let this comfort you. And let me remind you in saying that, that just as Israel is not the promised land, America isn't either. And I think we've forgotten that, for some of us. God doesn't dwell in countries made by human hands. Just as he doesn't dwell in a temple. All of this is His. Let that comfort you as you minister faithfully 
and as your faulty accused, and as even some of you may face death. Let that even cause you to forgive your enemies as they're doing that to you. Remember, that's how you live as a child of the new kingdom. You're living justly, you're expecting persecution, and you're forgiving your persecutors, even as they persecute you. And if that's you, don't be afraid. They persecute you in vain. God's kingdom will not be stopped. But, if the opposite is true, if your heart is hard, or if you resist forgiveness in Jesus, or I'll add, if you bend the gospel to avoid persecution, or even if you die cursing your enemies, be afraid. Be very afraid because you persecute God and His messengers when you do that. But you do that in vain. And that's your warning call to turn around. Because protecting yourself at the opposition of God is very much in vain. And the reason why is because persecution is not the end of the spread of the gospel, but it is the beginning. May we all take shelter in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the hard truth of Acts 6 and 7. I thank you that that is how your kingdom often grows is not through happy franchise expansion, but it involves much pain. And you know what, Lord? I think in the midst of that, what we can hope in and what we can take comfort in is the fact that the earth belongs to you. And the best news we can hear is that we are small pieces in the puzzle but we are a part of the puzzle. Lord, thank you so much. Would you help us to love, live justly, forgive our enemies, and to not run from the life you've called us to. Amen.